Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. It's easy to think about islands as being separate from the mainland, isolated and on their own. I'm sure we all think of that every time we approach the bridge or the ferry. But what if you saw the ocean and the rivers as pathways instead of barriers? Just think of everyone that's traveled this way throughout history, and how many shipwreck remains are hidden just off the coast of PEI. Today's episode is all about islanders in the water. Before modern vehicles came into play, the water was basically a road. It was often quicker to travel by water than by horse and carriage. But if we want to talk about sea travel, it's important to start at the beginning. Okay, uh, my name is Junior Peter Paul. I'm originally from Elsibukto First Nation, but I reside here in Prince Edward Island because all my kids are from here and my grandkids. So I live on Prince Edward Island. Junior Peter Paul is a Mi'kmaq elder. I went to visit him at Greenwich, where he spends all day in a traditional Mi'kmaq camp with a wigwam, birch bark canoe, and other objects that would have been used daily in Mi'kmaq communities until relatively recently. Junior's there to help visitors learn about Mi'kmaq history on the island. When my friend Todd Labrador came over, first time we built that wigwam, you know, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. I felt, the, uh, I felt the connections with my ancestors, you know, you know 100 years ago, or, or even more, 200, 300 years ago. More than that even, but the connection of being with the nature and making, real, making me realize there's a, a lot more life in nature when you build your own home as a wigwam, when you build your own canoe, when you're making things, when you're harvesting, when you're berry picking or whatever, hunting, trapping, it's like, it's all here. And that's, that's all we had. You know, and then when the Europeans came along, and that's when everything changed, you know. We weren't allowed to, you know, hunt or anything like that, you know. So that's why that's, that treaty treaty kicked in, you know, to, to allow us to be able to hunt and fish any time we want, you know. And, and it's, still, it's still that's, we're still having that little struggle with it, you know, and people are against it and... But, you know, that's, we started that way, you know. Our ancestors started that way. That's, that was our livelihood. So they were slowly trying to take that away from us. So, so that's why we, I do this now to, to, to fill in the ed- education with the students, you know, the people that, you know, what we really, how we lived. I asked Junior about Mi'kmaq ways of life before European contact and how they used the ocean and rivers for travel. The ways of life... In their days, you know, is it, it, you're right, it is the canoes, the bridge park canoes. Uh, that was our main uh, transportation along the rivers, along the bays, ocean canoes to come across from mainland to get to the island. That was their main transportation of, uh, of uh, getting to things, you know, harvesting, you know, uh, materials of bridge bark to make wigwams, to make build canoes. Uh, um, making containers or stuff like that. And also it was their transportation uh, in the rivers to get to the fields for, you know, berry picking and mm-hmm. strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, whatever, whatever is good for their, uh, for eating. 
and also going up river and deep woods and doing their trapping and hunting and mm-hmm. yeah. So the canoes were the main main thing back in their days. It was the the water was our our uh, transportation to get to places. Right, and so because this is radio, people won't be able to see. So can you describe what the canoes would look like for someone who wouldn't have seen one? The canoes, they're, are, they're made out of birch bark, all binded up with spruce roots, black spruce trees. Uh, they're harvested. Uh, birch bark is harvested, you know, it all depends on the temperature, time of the year. Spruce roots, you can start harvesting them as soon as the frost heaves, you know. So you can do that, you know pretty much any time and they would build their canoes all natural from the woods mm-hmm. yeah the process of making canoes has it changed at all over the years uh the process no it hasn't changed we're still using the same material same same uh same design the Mi'kmaq designs of uh, the canoes they're all different sizes and shapes of of canoes of each different communities and the nationality so Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the ones that you've made, what have they been like for sizes? Well, the first one that I made with my be- with my friend was Todd Labrador. He came over here five years ago and uh, built the canoe with us. I built it with him, and it was a 16 footer, just a you know the the river canoe. Yeah. That 16 foot canoe Junior built with his friend Todd is at Greenwich, and he takes it out in the water a couple times a year. Those canoes would have been used daily hundreds and thousands of years ago, whereas the ocean canoes Junior mentioned were more seasonal. They would have been used in late spring, summer, and fall before it became too cold. And the difference with the ocean canoe is the one, they're, they're built a lot longer, 20-footer or 24-footers, and a bit wider, and it's got a hump in the center that's for the big waves, you know, and it's got a sail on it, and they will canoe across you know, the oceans, you know, New Brunswick to PEI or PEI to Nova Scotia. I've heard stories there were canoe in Newfoundland even with the ocean canoe. So those are two different types of canoes that we use. Over winter, Junior said the canoes were stored underwater. Yeah, I, I've heard of stories, you know, somebody, my friend Todd told me that they used to store them underneath the ice, sink them down in the water. When the ice freezes over, they stay there. It's just to keep the material, you know, I don't know how to say it, but it's keep it away from the elements, you know, from the heat and whatever. And, and so they'd be fine over winter in the Oh, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. After the spring thawed, they bring them back out. And it's just as, it's just as fresh, you know, it looks, yeah. It stops from getting drying up too much and, you know, getting brittle. And. Because these canoes are designed to be used all the time, Junior said they perform a lot better when they're in the water often. Now, the Mi'kmaq weren't the only people on the island who traveled the waters, although they were the first. If we skip forward to when the Acadians were living on the island, water travel was also a main form of transportation for them. It's kind of our highway, like for our ancestors. And I often say that, you know, people say, oh, you're isolated, you're an island, on an island, or you live on an island. You might remember Georges Arsenault from episode one. He's a historian who focuses on island Acadian history. But... In those days, those who were living on an island and had a boat, it was easier for them to travel long distances than those who were living inside the continent, you know. You could take a river, but, uh, you know, you couldn't easily 
make go 50 miles in the woods. You know, it, you had to travel by water. That was the highway of the time. So uh, that's part of our history, and that's part of uh, the way my ancestors traveled. You know, up to the uh, 19th century, especially, and then maybe a bit also in the first part of the 20th century. But you know, the, the, the sea is, is magic, you know, it can be uh, rough, it can be uh, uh, deadly, but also it can be very calming. And uh, often when I have a hard time sleeping, instead of counting uh, sheep, I, I fix my mind on a sailboat. <laughs> and uh, it seems to calm me, or instead of, you know, thinking uh, of things I had to do or things that didn't go well, whatever, I just try to concentrate on either being on that sailboat or watching it from the beach, and that seems to calm me. When George talked about the sea being deadly, he wasn't exaggerating. If you find a map of all the shipwrecks around PEI, it's kind of overwhelming. There's hundreds of boats that sunk, and those are just the ones that we know about. One storm in island history is responsible for the sinking of almost a hundred boats, the Yankee Gale. It's called that because most of the ships lost were American vessels. Let's set the scene. It's Thursday, October 2nd, 1851. You're standing on the shore in Cavendish, and you can see anywhere from 50 to 300 boats. Most of them are American, because for the most part, islanders aren't fishing that much yet. Ed McDonald wrote in the Island Magazine that from a distance, the Yankees made an impressive sight with their black hulls and their white cotton sails spread out like summer washing along the skyline. At night, the effect could be magical. A St. John newspaper from the time period wrote, At night, when the fleet is safely anchored, the lanterns lighted on each vessel and swinging upon the shrouds. One may fancy himself looking upon some huge city lying in repose, with its lamps all trimmed and burning. You're watching these boats, and because you're watching history 170 years later, you know most of them will be fighting for their lives this time tomorrow night. Friday, October 3rd comes. It's a fine day, warm for the season. There's this old superstition among New England fishermen that nothing important should be done on a Friday because it's unlucky. Despite this, hundreds of boats continue to fish. In late afternoon, the weather changes. Ed McDonald writes, Around 4 p.m., the breeze died and a glassy calm settled over the waters. The distant sky looked dark, and hundreds of seabirds could be heard making their way to land. By the time many fishermen sensed the storm coming, there was no breeze to sail for shelter. At dusk, a southern wind did pick up, but it wasn't helpful for the fishermen because it kept pushing them away from shore. Then the wind switched directions to become northeast, where the worst island storms traditionally come from. By now, the wind was rising to a gale, accompanied by hard rain. The seas were wild and it was pitch dark because the island government had yet to invest in any lighthouses on the North Shore. 
Ed writes, All through that first terrible night, most of the mackerel boats held on where they were. Dawn came, and with it, a sort of half-light. But the gale raged on. All day Saturday, the devil's brew of rain, wind, and sea battered the fleet. It was too much, too long. Gradually, danger turned to disaster. Death walked the waters. It found the fishermen everywhere. On vessels driven ashore and hammered to splinters on rocky headlands. On vessels found at the feet of the sandhills. On vessels run down by other schooners or capsized at sea. It was Sunday evening before the storm finished. Estimates vary, but anywhere from 80 to 120 ships were lost. Up to 250 men could have drowned. And that's only one storm. There's been countless other shipwrecks, and people haven't forgotten. Georges spent time studying Acadian folk ballads called Complaints that capture different moments in history to remember. About 60% of the complaint that I have studied, that was the thesis for my master's degree in folklore, uh, studying the, these ballads, these complaints composed by island Acadians, about 60% of them are about drownings, either when fishing or traveling by, by ship. The oldest one on that theme dates back to 1835, when my grandfather's great-grandfather on my mother's side uh, drowned during a storm when he was sailing from Tignish to Boktush, New Brunswick. His wife was from there and she wanted to go home to visit relatives and they got caught in the storm and finally he drowned. She didn't. And uh, a very old ballad was a very old, a ballad was composed uh, on that and I was able to record a few uh, verses and uh, I like the melody of it. It's very, uh, it sounds a bit like uh, the, uh, the old church music you used to hear, uh, if I can remember the, the melody. Oh, cet aimable Pascal demeurait sur l'île Saint-Jean, épousait une seconde femme. There's four or five verses of that. When I recorded it, you know, I, I had no idea that he was my, one of my ancestors on the Poirier side. And it's just later when I was doing uh, the genealogy of this Pascal Poirier that uh, I've, I found out that he was the grandfather of my grandfather's grandmother, I think, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, so it goes quite a few generations back. And then there's another song about the drowning of a young fisherman from Rustico, Firma Galant, in 1862. And uh, it's a very long ballad, and it has been recorded uh, in different places in the Maritimes. I found it on the island, quite a complete version. And uh, in the song, which was composed probably not long after the drowning, uh, it mentions that that young man is from Lille Saint-Jean, because in French, even if the island had been renamed Prince of Wadown in 1799, for the Acadians, they still kept calling the island Ile Saint-Jean in French. Even uh, until about 20 years ago, people in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, they still used the word Ile Saint-Jean when referring to Prince Edward Island. Yeah. But anyway, the, the song goes, uh, just the first verse, 
C'est dans notre petite île, nommée du nom de Saint-Jean, de rustique aux quelques mille, j'entrevois ce cher enfant. Dans une petite barque du rivage bien éloignée, qui bat beaucoup de recherches, ses filets s'en va chercher. And it goes on for about 15 verses. Acadians are still composing these folk ballads today, too. The most recent one George Hertel of was composed in 1976, again about a man who drowned. Sea travel and shipwrecks often go hand in hand, but not always. I asked Junior Peter Paul if he knew any stories of Mi'kmaq people being lost at sea long ago. You know, I, I haven't heard of anything like that, of, you know, getting lost. You know, the, the indigenous people, you know, they're very skeptic of, you know, they pay attention to, you know, if they know it's going to be a storm, unfortunately they're not going to go out and, you know, they'll find a perfect day and they know it's going to be a nice calm day and that's what they'll attempt to uh, to canoe across. But if it's not a, if it's a major real storm, they wouldn't go anywhere, but sometimes, you know, they end up hitting a storm, small storm, and that's why we, we use the ocean canoes and with the sails on it and it helps them go with the, uh, go with the waves. Our ancestors, they seem to know, you know, what the weather's going to be like. You know, they're, they were uh, very uh, careful with things like that. Once commercial fishing came into play, people started sailing into the ocean more. The water became something to exploit, not travel on and fish to survive, like Junior Peter Paul talked about. So it makes sense there'd be much more danger when you have 500 boats in the water determined to take all they can, rather than a community that only takes what they need short term. In any case, the fisheries became a central industry on PEI. I talked to Paul Gallant, author of a book titled Surrey by the Sea, Home of the Dragger Fleet. Draggers are another word for trawler boats, and they were fishing vessels. In the second half of the 1900s, Surrey was known as Home of the Dragger Fleet because so many trawler boats fished out of there. Most of the draggers in Surrey were built over in Port Greville, Nova Scotia, and a shipyard there, and they were wooden wooden draggers, and uh, around 60 feet, 62 feet. The last one, the Fane and Joanne, was built in 1960. It was 65 feet long. But then after that, the uh, steel draggers came into being because they were bigger and more efficient, and they were 92 feet steel, and they were built over in uh, Picto, Ferguson Industries. Even though technology became more advanced over the years, there's always danger when you work in the water. I asked Paul about shipwreck stories in the 20th century, and there's been many. Oh, the first major one back 1945 after the war was over was the Assiniboine on South Lake. It was a class destroyer in the World War effort, and uh, it was being towed from Sorrel, Quebec to Baltimore, and the tow line broke coming around East Point. Anyway, there's a seven-man skeleton crew aboard it, and they managed to get ashore. And it wasn't like a violent storm. It was the tow line issue, the uh, HMCS Assiniboine. And the next major one, and probably more major, is the fact that we had the Iceland II that was leased by my dad's company in 1967, February 2nd, I believe. And it went ashore over in Cape Britain, Cape Forshoe, and 10 Ten crewmen were were lost, and most of them from Surrey. 
So that was, that was a sad day for the town. Paul's dad's company was Eastern Fisheries based in Surrey. A terrible storm kicked up that February night, with waves reaching 45 feet high and wind gusts reaching 100 miles per hour. The uh, owner was Jonas Bohansen. He was an Icelander. He was home in Iceland at the time. It went aground during the night, washed ashore. Or they were off course trying to make harbor in Lewisburg, and they just missed the, uh, missed the run, I guess. And he ran full steam ashore, apparently, and uh, it was a rough night, it was cold, and the ship wasn't noticed until the next morning, a day or so later. Due to the weather, the rescue crew could not do anything. They had boat boats and a helicopter, and then Sunday the bodies were found along the shore. There was only one man on board, and they managed to retrieve him. In 2017, 200 people gathered in Surrey to remember the 10 men who died on the 50th anniversary of the Iceland II sinking. Even though storms like the Yankee Gale that destroyed 100 ships haven't happened recently, there's still a risk to working on the water. If you're walking along the beach in PEI, there's a strong chance you could find shipwreck remains. With the hundreds of ships lost at sea, sometimes pieces find their way onto the beach. In July of 2017, a woman named Ellen McLeod was walking along the Kildare shore at low tide when she found something unusual. What looked to be dozens of short posts were sticking out of the sand in a huge semicircle. Natural shifting of the sands over the years had made them become visible. While it's unclear what boat these pieces came from, a local historian, Alan McRae, believes they're from a schooner called The Rival. This boat was wrecked during the Yankee storm. That's the same storm we talked about earlier, which means it could be 170 years old. And I know we talk about history being this dead thing you can't see, but in this case, you can. Just imagine how long those pieces were hidden underneath the sand before they finally became visible. So think of that the next time you go for a walk, and keep your eyes peeled. Thank you for listening to this episode. The PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation is a not-for-profit organization that relies on the generosity of supporters to help fund projects like this podcast. If you'd like to become a supporter and make a donation, please visit us at peimuseum.ca and click on the support tab. Every little bit helps. Thank you to Junior Peter Paul, George Arsenault, and Paul Glant for your time in being interviewed. Also, those sea shanties you were hearing? That's Caitlin Paxson and her team at Green Park Shipbuilding Museum in Yohouse. Thank you to our sponsors, Nimrods and Upstreet Brewing. Shout out to Adam Glant, who's responsible for our intro music. Talk to you soon.